Well, I'm preaching this morning from the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis. If you would like to follow along, I have waited all week to preach today. Uh, some of you pa- pastors here know what that's like. Not every week's like that, but uh, what, an, what an unbelievable story we look at today as we continue our look of Joseph, the Old Testament character of Joseph. And this morning I want to speak to you about a dysfunctional family living faithfully for God in the midst of dysfunction. And so we look to God's Word. Genesis chapter 37, let me read the first 10 verses. read part of it last Sunday and hear the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob, the father. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zippah. Those are important names for you to remember today. His father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of uh, his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. He made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheave rose and stood up right while your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then Joseph had another dream. He told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will will your mother and I actually, and your brothers actually, come down and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. What a setting for great strife in in a home. Joseph had uh, these ten brothers. They hated him. He didn't help them by telling them the dream, by the way. He certainly had his part in, in that. But they hated him all the more and, and hated him because of it. And uh, uh, I don't think there's anything else on the, on the pulpit I can knock off. <laughs> well, they hated him. Uh, and uh, uh, that dynamic would, would follow through throughout the life of Joseph and, uh, and really create the great scene. The book of Genesis, after the first four great events, is divided from events to people. And the last half of the book of Genesis is about Abraham, the beginning, the father of the nation of the Jewish people. It is followed by his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and his son Joseph. More is written about Joseph than than any of the other three, even though they played significant roles in, in, in life and the way that God blessed them. But this story is about Joseph. But it's actually about his father Jacob. And, uh, and, and the environment that was created in their home. Are you ready for this? It's a story almost unbelievable. Uh, uh, you couldn't make up a story quite this dynamic. Well, Jacob was a, was a, a, a twin. He was uh, the son of Isaac, who was the son of Jacob, uh, Abraham. And when uh, Jacob was born, he, Esau, his twin brother, was born first. Jacob was born holding on the heel of his older brother. That would be a sign of who this guy was. It could be said about Jacob in his adulthood years, even in his young years, he was quite a, he was quite a trickster. He was a con man. He was a, he was a slick guy that sought to get the best of everyone and the advantage of every situation. He 
was not afraid to cheat people. He lived on the edges of truth and fact, and, and, and the result of his efforts were not true and, and were just hard to believe. He was, as one man said, like a Las Vegas card shark. He was, as, as I heard some of my family members say one time, when that guy walks in, your room, in the room, men put one hand on your wallet and one, the other hand on your women. He was not a good guy. First half of his adult life, Jacob was a cheater and a swindler and, and everything that those things were to entail. He would have an encounter with God somewhere in the process in the middle of nowhere. He would wrestle with an angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, all night long. And, and finally grabbed on to the, to, the, to the coattail of the angel and said, Before you leave me, you have to give me a blessing. And it, it kind of turned Jacob's life around, but it was too late for some of the things that had already had done. And as a side note, the angel of the Lord, after a night of wrestling, touched Jacob on the, on the hip and probably dislocated his hip. And uh, Jacob, no doubt, uh, very likely limped the rest of his life so that every step he took, he was reminded of a face-to-face -face encounter with God and what God promised him and what he promised God. And in fact, even his descendants would not eat the part of an animal around that hip to remember all that. That was, hip was a big deal. But Jacob was quite a, quite, quite a, 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 a trickster. And he, his ultimate, or his, uh, up until this point in his adult life, his greatest scheme was to trick his brother, older brother Esau, out of the birthright blessing of his father. And when his father Isaac was old and his eyesight had failed, the Bible said, Jacob conspired with his mother to trick the father into blessing him. We don't really understand that setting. It's so different now. But, but, but the birthright blessing meant that the, the son who was given the birthright owned everything the father had. It was not, materials were not distributed equally among all the kids. The, the birthright son owned it all. And in a, in a great scheme of putting Esau's clothes on and a great scheme of taking deer skin and taping it to his arms because Esau was a hairy guy and, and all those kinds of things. Jacob pulled off what he believed to be the most masterful scheme he had had to this date. And Jacob and Isaac, his father, blessed Jacob with the birthright blessing. When Esau came home, there was trouble in the camp. And because of that, Jacob decided he needed to run. His mother told him to go east across the desert to her brother's house, Laban. And Jacob did that and actually centered around a well after, after day or days of traveling. Now, Laban had two daughters. Rachel, uh, excuse me, Leah was the oldest one, and Leah was not a good looker. In fact, the Bible says she had, very poor, she had weak eyes, among other things. His younger daughter was named uh, Rachel, and Rachel was a Miss America beauty. So you had the older daughter that was quite an ugly duckling. By the way, the Bible doesn't say that. That's my assessment. And you had Rachel that was just the opposite. She was beautiful. Everything Rachel was to beauty, Leah was to uh, not beauty. <laughs> and they took Jacob home, and he began to work for his uncle. He stayed there a month, and his uncle said, why don't you stay here and work for me? And, you know, it's not right for family members not to get paid. And, and, uh, and, and Jacob, what, what do you think would be a good uh, wage? And Jacob said, I'll tell you what, I, I fell in love with Rachel, the younger daughter, the first time I saw her. And I'll work seven years for you, tending your flocks, for the privilege of you giving me your daughter, Rachel, to be my wife. And Laban said, what a deal. They shook hands. They, they, they did whatever they do to make it official. And Jacob began to work in the family business for his uncle Laban. Seven years. The Bible said that he loved Rachel so much, the seven years seemed like just a few days. And finally, the seventh year came. 
And Jacob said to Uncle Laban, you remember seven years ago we made a deal. I fulfilled my duties. Now it's time for you to fulfill your duties. Would you give me now your beautiful daughter, Rachel, in marriage? And they had a big wedding ceremony, and we don't really understand the whole context of the wedding in those days. It lasted, the wedding feast lasted a week or more at times, at least a week. It, would, it was a, a, a celebration. It was a week-long party. It was a week-long whatever that they did to celebrate. And the week was culminated at its end by the father bringing the daughter to the groom. And with great anticipation, Jacob waited for the week's end. Friday came, or whatever it would be, and in his tent, in the darkness, in the middle of the night, after a week of engaging in celebration in, in, uh, in eating, and perhaps the Bible doesn't say drinking too much wine, but somehow that might have been in it, Laban pulled the greatest trick of his life on the trickster. He dressed his ugly daughter up, Leah, and took her to Jacob as his wife. I don't know if he went down to Nordstrom's and bought some new scarves and put on her. I don't know if he had a headdress that had all kinds of bling on it and nobody noticed. More than likely, Leah was covered up from head to toe, and probably just this portion of her face was, was seen, but it was dark, and it was night, and it, was, it, it, was, uh, it, was, it had been an exhausting week. And Jacob did not realize till the light of morning came who he had been sleeping beside. And when he woke up and found it was Leah, the ugly one, the one he did not want, uh, the trickster had been tricked. The swindler had been swindled. Jacob would have the last say with Laban before it was all over with, but for this time, he had he'd worked seven years for something. He had waited seven years. He had longed for seven years. He had planned for seven years, and the time came, and he was swindled out of the woman he loved. <clears throat> Jacob went to bed, went to sleep thinking he was, would wake up with a dream, but he woke up. Uh, with a nightmare. There, there ought to be a country and western song in that story. <laughs> <clears throat> I think Willie Nelson actually has one, but the tagline's not pr proper to present from the pulpit. <clears throat> he, went to, he went to sleep that night thinking he was marrying the woman of his dreams, and he woke up marrying the woman of his, of his not dream, of his uh, nightmare, <clears throat> and uh, realized he'd been tricked. Of course, it was irrevocable. And so he said to Laban, what have you done to me? And Laban said, I'll tell you what, I'll go ahead and let you marry Rachel if you give me another seven years of work. This starts in chapter 29 of the book of Genesis. You should read it to this day or this week. Sometime it's an unbelievable story. And Jacob willingly did that and worked seven years and, and married Rachel. Okay, everybody with me now. You've got to keep this straight. It's hard to keep straight. God saw that Leah, that, that Jacob had no love towards Leah. And God blessed her. The Bible says God opened her womb and she began to produce boys as fast as time would allow. In, in the space of four years, she produced four sons. She gave to Jacob, her husband, and said, And with each son, maybe now that I've given him a son, he will love me or like me or do something nice to me. Four sons, right in a row. But the womb of Rachel, his love, was shut, and Rachel had no children. And so the score is, among the sisters, four to zero. And you don't think that the sisters talked about that. 
You don't think the sister that was not wanted and not loved and, and, but able to produce uh, her husband, the, the goods, taunted her younger sister that he did love and did want because she couldn't have any child. Here's where it really gets crazy. Rachel said, if I can't produce a child, maybe my attendant, my servant can. And so she went to Jacob and said, I've not been able to produce a child for you, but I'm going to give you my servant girl to marry as your wife, wife number three, by the way, and maybe you can have children with her and therefore somehow a connection with me. And for whatever reason, Jacob doesn't object. And he marries Rachel's servant girl, Bilna. And she immediately produces two sons. By the way, Leah stopped having babies at that time. She produced two sons for Rachel to give to Jacob. Anybody keeping score now? That's six boys. Well, older sister Leah said, that's not fair. It's supposed to be between me and you, and I'm ahead, and that's not fair. You shouldn't give somebody else to do it. If you've done that, then I'm going to give Jacob my servant girl to be his fourth wife so that he can, I can continue to produce children for him. And Zibna became the fourth wife, and she produced right away two more sons. At that time, the Lord opened the womb of Leah again, and she would produce two more sons. And now the scorecard is ten sons total. And, and here's where it gets complicated. Wife number one, Leah, had produced six boys. Wife number two, Rachel, was still at zero. Wife number three, Rachel's servant girl, had produced two boys. And wife number four, uh, Leah's servant girl, had produced two boys. Life was a myth. Ten kids by three women. And then the Lord blessed, when, when all the ten boys were grown, the Lord blessed Rachel and allowed her to conceive. And she delivered a boy and named him Joseph and presented him after a lifetime of trying, presented him to her husband, Jacob. No wonder the Bible says Jacob loved Joseph more than any others because his mother was the one Jacob loved first of all. And then she would, Rachel would produce one more child before this story is over. Benjamin would be his name and Rachel would die in childbirth when delivering Benjamin. What a mess! Four wives, 12 children in all. Only one of the wives was really loved. Only one of the wives was really valued. Uh, two sisters, two servants. Uh, life was a mess. Listen, folks, there's a Jerry Springer career in the family of Jacob. He wouldn't have to audition and go across the country and find people doing weird and crazy things. He's got it right there in this family. And that was the family dynamic, jealousy and hatred and anger and bitterness. I'm not even going to, I'm going to skip over for time's sake the part where there was a girl born in all of this and the girl was raped and attacked by an official in another country and Jacob didn't do anything about it except it shouldn't happen. By the way, the boys did something about it and, and it was pretty terrible, the ten boys. And I'm not even going to go on to the point where one of the adult Boys of one wife attacked another one of Jacob's wives and had an ancestral relationship with her. What a mess! And the ten brothers, original ten brothers, hated Joseph. They hated him because of who he was. They hated him because of who his mother was. They hated him because of the attention the old man gave him. They hated everything about him. And Joseph didn't help them at all by telling him his dreams. She sure could have kept his mouth shut. But that wouldn't have, have, have changed the fact that they didn't like him. They couldn't even say a good word about him, the Bible says. Life in Jacob's home was a mess. Amen to that. 
And in the midst of this comes Joseph, and the tragedy begins to happen. Uh, a a two-minute summary. The brothers decide, ten brothers decide they're going to kill Joseph. But they don't kill him. They throw him in a hole in the ground because eating was more important. Eating lunch was more important than killing their brother. While they were eating, a caravan of traders came along. Somebody decided to sell Joseph to them. They would be free of his blood. They would not be guilty of murder. And they get a little change in their pocket. It seemed like a great idea. And they sold Joseph as a, uh, to a caravan of traders who took him to Egypt and sold him on a common auction block for 20 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. Joseph was bought by a guy named Potiphar, a captain of the army of Egypt. And, and, and God blessed Joseph, though, and God blessed everybody around him. And, and, and Potiphar, the, the slave owner, knew that, and he gave Joseph more and more responsibilities until God blessed his household. And then things got worse when Potiphar's wife had noticed Joseph as well. And she wasn't interested in God's blessing on her home. She was interested in Joseph for herself. She tried to get him to, to, to be a part of a, an affair with her, an adulterous affair, and Joseph wouldn't do it. He was, honor, he was honorable to God and honorable to his master, and when she could not have him, she decided she would destroy him. I'm not exaggerating that. She grabbed him by the shirt one day when Noah was around and said, it's nobody, there's nobody here but me and you today's the day. Joseph ran out of his shirt, left her holding it in her hand. She kept it in her hand all day long until her husband came home and said, while you were gone, this Hebrew kid you brought into our house tried to take advantage of me. I screamed and he ran off, but here is his shirt, and what are you going to do about that? Potiphar exercised his right as, a, as the owner to immediately have Joseph thrown in prison which was a hole in the ground below the palace. It was more dungeon-like. Hadn't done anything wrong. And, and, and Joseph realized God was there. The jailer realized God blessed Joseph. He began to give Joseph more and more duties. It wasn't long until Joseph was running the whole prison, but he's still incarcerated. Pharaoh would throw a couple of his servants into prison, and Joseph would attend to them, and they would eventually have dreams and be troubled by that. And Joseph told them what the dream was going to be. He said, one of you guys, Pharaoh's going to, in three days, Pharaoh's going to lift one of you guys out of this dungeon and put you to your place of duty, the cupbearer. But to the baker, he said, in three days, he's going to get you out of prison too, but he's going to cut your head off. It happened just like Joseph said. And Joseph said to the cupbearer who was going to live, Remember me when you get up there and help me get out of here. And true to Joseph's form, the cupbearer forgot all about Joseph. Two more years went by. Pharaoh would have, begin to have dreams. Nobody could figure out what, was gonna, what they meant. He, he summoned his most wise men with their lives if they didn't tell him. Finally, the cupbearer remembered, a couple of years ago, you got mad at me and the baker, and you threw us in this jail. And, and there's, a, there's a Hebrew guy down there that told us exactly what a dream meant to us. And, and you might try him. Pharaoh lifted Joseph out of the dungeon. They had to clean him up before he could go see Pharaoh. They had to put clean clothes on him and shave him and, and kind of dress him up. But he finally got before the Pharaoh, the most powerful, powerful man in that part of the world at that time pharaoh said i know you can under you can interpret dreams and joseph reminded him i can't do anything but i know a god in heaven who can and god revealed the dream to joseph and pharaoh said it makes sense to me and joseph said if i were you i'd begin to manage the the harvest for seven years the crops are going to grow like they've never grown before but don't get too impressed with that because the next seven years is going to be a drought and the and the drought is going to be so hard and the famine is going to be so extensive you will forget the years of abundance and if i were you i'd 
hire somebody to manage the harvest. And Pharaoh said, you're the only one that can tell me what's going on, and, I, and I'm going to make you that person. He put a royal ring on his finger. He put a royal robe on his, uh, on, on his shoulders. He, he, uh, he dusted the prison dust off and dressed him up in a royal fashion, and he gave him the daughter of, of a very uh, prominent man in uh, Egypt to be his wife. And he said, you're second in command only to me. And Joseph would manage the harvest. And Joseph would be the savior of life for his family and all of Egypt. And in fact, they came from all over the world to buy grain in Egypt because nobody had anything to eat but them. And Joseph was in charge of it all. I wish the Bible would have indicated the day Potiphar's wife came to Joseph to beg for food. <laughs> but it doesn't have that in there. I'm amazed, though, that Joseph comes out of that segment of dysfunction. All the wives, all the brothers, all the jealousy, all the lying, all the deceit, all the betrayal. And, and, then, and then taking into account the physical things that happened to him. I'm amazed that Joseph came out of that pit not filled with anger, not overcome with bitterness, not depressed, not discouraged. He, he experienced all of those things, no doubt. He came out of the dungeon, a man ready to walk through the door. God opened for him, and he became the savior of his family and the preserver of a remnant of the very people of God. And it is from this group of people a long time in the future, Jesus would be born. How did Joseph learn how to survive in the midst of such dysfunction? Well, Joseph, first of all, allowed God to control his life. Joseph couldn't control his circumstance. Joseph couldn't control what was happening to him. In fact, Joseph lived most of his adult life with no ability to affect anything that was happening to him. All Joseph could do is worry about himself and allow God to control him through all of that. The betrayal of his brothers, the mess his father had created, the, the, the anger, the hatred, the jealousy. He lived in a world where, where almost no one spoke nicely to him. And yet, he doesn't seem to be filled with anger, betrayed by those closest to him, betrayed by those who were supposed to protect him and take care of him. They didn't do that to their little brother. They abused him. They, they, they did unquestionable things, unmentionable things to Joseph. And yet Joseph stays on the straight line with God, falsely accused by his employer, being the best employee his, his employer had ever had, Honorable, noble, honest, and yet falsely accused by a woman with other intentions and put in the worst existence that was possible in his day and time in the prison, in the dungeon. By the way, they didn't have parole. You didn't get out generally of the prison system. You, you only had two ways out. First of all, the person who put you in there had to change their mind and say it's okay, you served enough. Or the Pharaoh of Egypt certainly superseded all. Most people left prison being carried out because they died there. In the midst of all that, God said to Joseph, I'm opening this door. Joseph presented himself there and became, uh, and became the Savior of the people of God. How did he do it? Now, I, don't, I know this is a very uh, touchy situation, and, and I don't mean to step overstep any bounds, but, but sometimes the families around us have, have, have been in a mess, and sometimes we have grown up in messy families, and sometimes we, we've grown up instead of a loving, warm environment where people took care of us, just the opposite happened, and we are all affected by our environment. 
we are all affected more than we wish we were, more than we admit we were, sometimes more than we even know we are affected by the environment we were raised in. I hear people say to me all the time, Pastor, we're struggling here, we're struggling there, and, but you don't understand where we've come from, and you don't understand our past, and you don't understand all that's happened to me, and, and on and on and on and on. And I don't. But I want to tell you, if there's anyone here like that today, God's power to bring a change in our life is still greater than what our parents have done to us, our siblings have done to us, those who were supposed to protect us have done to it. God's power is still greater than the environment and past we have in our lives. Amen. And God can help us rise above all of that just like He helped Joseph rise above the mess that he was in. We are all products of our environment. And sometimes dysfunctional families produce dysfunctional kids, and dysfunctional kids produce dysfunctional families, and the cycle goes on and on and on and on. A famous thinker and philosopher, Leo Tolstoy, said these words, Happy families are all the same, but unhappy families are all unhappy in their own unique way. Sometimes it's verbal abuse. Sometimes it's physical abuse. Sometimes it's a breakdown of trust. Sometimes it's, it's all kinds, there's all kinds of ways to be dysfunctional. And sometimes, all the time, we bring that into our adult lives, and, and we struggle to get over it, and we bring it into the church, and we bring it into work. God says, if you will trust me and let me change you, you do not have to be a prisoner of your past. Hallelujah. God said what, what they did to you is terrible and, 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 and how they've affected your mind and maybe even your bodies is terrible and, and the enemy, you have to believe, the devil is behind some of that, if not all of it. But God says today, my power is still greater than the enemy against you. And if there's ever a person in Scripture that proves that, it is this guy named Joseph. I, I know that Joseph had to allow God to control his life because Joseph couldn't control what was happening to him all Joseph could control is himself and God. And God blessed Joseph in prison. And God blessed Joseph in the workplace. And God blessed Joseph in the, in the, in the hole in the ground his brothers put him in. And God blessed Joseph in every way. Not only that, God blessed anyone that was nice to Joseph. Because Joseph let God take control of his life. Perhaps this morning, some of the greatest needs we have in our lives and getting over our past is that we just give it all to God and begin to say to God, make of it what you want to make of it. Give me a new day. Give me a new time. I want you to control what is happening to me and control me in the midst of what's happening to me. Sometimes the greatest hindrances are our past. And sometimes we try to solve it ourselves, and there's nothing wrong with counseling, and there's nothing wrong with all those kinds of things. It's a, it's a blessing of God, but sometimes we get in a real mess because we try to control it. And God says, you can't. Allow me to control your life and your future. I would say to you, secondly, Joseph was able to overcome his past because he adopted God's value system. He was honest. He was faithful. He was loyal. He followed through on what he said he's going to do. He did not let the circumstances of his life adjust the value system he had. He didn't compromise in Egypt when there were no Christians around. He didn't compromise by just believing in their gods a little bit. He didn't, he didn't let the pressure in the environment so squeeze him and change him that he, that he went along to get along. We don't find compromise there. We find a man who had God's value system, 
in the midst of a tragic, tragic life. I want to ask you this morning, who sets your value system? Believe me, it's being set every day. It's being set with every, every commercial you see on TV. It's being set with every movie and what the major themes are. The, the, the media industry has so changed the conscience of our country over the last 50 years that we are not anything like what we used to be. And peer pressure changes a lot of our values. We, we want to fit in the crowd and we want to be a part of it and we, we act this way and we talk this way and we do these things and we dress this way because it's the way our value system is being adjusted. You can't look at the world and, and not be a part of it the, the, and not be a part of it in so many ways. The Apostle Paul knew this when he writes in the book of Romans to, to God's people. Don't let yourselves be squeezed into the mold of the world around you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and heart by God. Joseph, in the midst of all of that, seems to have adopted God's value system. He knew who he was, and he knew who God was, and that became the motivator. He couldn't stop his brothers from, from trying to kill him. He couldn't stop the slavery part of it. He couldn't stop a woman falsely accusing him. He couldn't stop life in the prison. He was forgotten. He was forgotten. I want to tell you, folks, there's a lot of bad things that happen to us, but to be forgotten is just something we have a hard time getting our minds wrapped around. The key to Joseph rising above his dysfunctional family and dysfunctional setting is that, that he seemed to allow God to control his life. He seemed to adopt God's values. And then there's no place in Scripture where Joseph focused on blaming people for the way he was. He didn't play the blame game. He didn't say to his father, you don't know how my brothers treat me. He didn't go to his mother and say, you don't, this is not fair. He didn't, he didn't tell Pharaoh about Potiphar when he was finally out of prison in a 20-year cycle. I think I would have at least wanted to got Pharaoh off to the side once the deal was done and said, listen, you better not trust that guy you got as a captain of your guard, and you better not ever get along with his wife. When Joseph's brother showed up begging for food, Joseph, oh, he played with them a little bit, but Joseph ultimately rewards them for what they've done and are for what has happened and God has allowed to happen. You remember the final story of Joseph when his brothers finally realized who he was? You remember what he said? Guys, don't worry about all of this. What you meant for harm, God has turned into good. You meant to harm me, God has made it be a blessing to you. you. You meant to do me in, but God has made to set me up. Don't feel bad for yourselves. You've got to figure out how you deal with what you've done yourselves. But as for me, God was in control of my life, not you. And God honored his great uh, uh, commitment uh, by blessing his life in such a special way and Joseph becomes the savior of his family and Joseph becomes the savior of a remnant of the race of the very people of God a man who had every reason to quit you ever feel like quitting I, I do I don't know what that means but just kind of quit quit uh, like to forget this pattern or this uh, station of life or this season of life you ever you ever get so discouraged you just want to throw your hands up in the air and quit you ever walked away and walked out happening all the time Joseph had reason to blame everybody because he was innocent. But he doesn't seem to do that because he let God control his life, because he let God set his value system, because he looked to God in the future instead of focusing on the past. And God blessed Joseph with this remarkable story 
a kid who rose up from such a mess in life, a kid who rose up to be perhaps the most powerful man in the world because he controlled the food. A Hebrew boy serving in Egypt, a person of Jewish heritage running the country of a pagan uh, 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 a Pharaoh and leader. God bless Joseph because God's power, I say it again, is greater than what life has brought you, is greater than the environment you worked in, is greater than what people have done to you, and God wants to do what He did for Joseph for every one of us if we will let Him do just that. I've met a few, uh, I've met two con men in my life. I'm actually sure I've met more than that, but I wasn't aware of it. But, but two I was. If you are, uh, if you are a longtime Texan and you are, uh, you are not young, <laughs> I would be that. Perhaps the name Billy Saul Estes rings a, uh, uh, as a name in your brain. Billy Saul Estes was one of the first men a long time ago convicted of running a pyramid scheme. I met Billy Saul one day. He was well into his 80s. He had the voice of an orator. As a friend of mine said, he could still sell ice to the Eskimos. He was slick. He, grad, he complimented every woman he saw about something. He hugged them. He, he got down on the level eye to eye with their kids. He talk, Oh, he was a smooth operator, all, long out of prison, but uh, what a con man he was. The second con man I met was in New York City, and I didn't realize I was part of the con until it was all over. Christmas time in New York City. I took mother and daddy to New York City to see the city and its holiday decorations. And our usual day would begin early. We would sightsee and go around New York City until after lunchtime. Then, then everybody would go back to their hotel room and rest for the evening. But that was my time to be out on the street. Life's happening on the streets in New York City. And I love, I love the hot dog vendor. I love hot dogs off the vendor cart in New York City, if you've ever had them. So I decided with everybody in sleeping, I'll slip out and go get a hot dog or two. And I get a hot dog, and I think I ate one while he was making the second one and got a Pepsi. And there's a, there's a little store right off Times Square, a little family-owned business that has the best poppy seed rolls I've ever eaten. And I thought, nothing better to wash this couple of hot dogs down with, with a poppy seed roll. So I'll go over there and get that. I've got a Pepsi in one hand. I've got my hot dog. I've got a bag with my, with my uh, poppy seed muffin. And my biggest goal is to try not to get mustard all over me. And I, holiday crowds swell. I saw a man a few steps in front of me walk up to a trash can that had a flat top, flat surface to it. And he pulled out from his overcoat a part of a cardboard box that just amazingly fit perfectly over that. He pulled out three walnut, half walnut shells and a little round pea and challenged anybody to bet against him that they could find the pea after he put it under the, under the shell and began to move them all around. They were, he was trying to get somebody to take him up on that when I went in to get my muffin. When I came back out, uh, he had found a, He was talking to a guy that looked like a tourist, and the tourist didn't want to play, but, but, but he was intrigued by it. And that, that guy would put, that, put the peanut or put the, the ball under the, the, the walnut shell, and he would move them around, and every now and then he would show, raise one up and show you where the pea was, and he would do it again. And Finally, he sold the guy, let's just play for fun. <clears throat> and wouldn't you know it? The guy won two out of three times. And the swindler said, or the dealer said, I'll bet you $20 you can't do that again. And the tourist 
uh, encouraged by his success, said, you're on. And lo and behold, the tourist won. And the man said, let me try to get my money back again. And the tourist said, no. And the dealer said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you two to one if you beat me. He put his $40 there, had an opportunity to win $180 more. Uh, he did just that. They went through that session three or four times, and there was quite a bit of money on that cardboard box. And, and, uh, he, and the dealer said, man, you're just beating me so bad. You, you just got to give me one more chance to win some of my money back. That was the hook. I'm still about halfway through my hot dog. I got my Pepsi in one hand. I'm trying not to get mustard all over me. There's a whole bunch of money on the thing. And two women walk up in full-length fur coats. They are jeweled out. They are made up. They are beautiful, beautiful women. And one of them says, I want a little bit of that action. And she opened her purse and began to throw down 20s and 50s. And her, 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 her compadre said she wanted And she put a couple hundred dollars down. And the game was on. I'm just eating my hot dog trying to keep mustard off of me. That guy began to move his hands faster than I have ever seen anybody. It was such a, a work of art. It was such a skill he had developed. He would every now and then, he would flip that, that shell up and show you where the pea was, and he would begin to, to move them around. And, and I, knew that, I knew that what was happening. And, and just at the last minute, I was standing off to the side, just at the last minute, the last time, he raised that shell up towards me, put it down and did his little thing and said to the tourist, which one is the pea under? And the tourist said, it's under one on the left. And guess what? It was not. And he looked at me and said, do you think you know where it is? And I said, sure. It's under that pea right there. It's under that shell right there. He raised it up, and guess what? It was. And he said, you won. And one of those ladies with her mink-coated arm reached out and scooped up all that money. I'm standing there with trying to get mustard, not, kind of keep mustard, and she sticks all that money in my finger. And she said, she, got, she just wrapped herself around me. She actually put her arm uh, on my other side of my neck and pulled me close, and, and she said, honey, you won. Take the money and walk off right now. And I said, no, I didn't win. I'm not playing. And she did that again, and the dealer said, fair and square fair and square. Would you just give me a chance to win my money back? And I dropped the money on the, on the cardboard box and said, no, sir, I'm not playing. And he said, that's crazy, man. You got a couple thousand dollars there. Miss Meatcoat did that again. I finished my, my, my hot dog and wiped my mouth and part of it was, I mean, wiped my face and part of it was red. I thought I was bleeding for a minute. I realized I had her lipstick smeared all over my face. I kind of enjoyed that, by the way. <laughs> but I walked off with them taunting me. And uh, I've often wondered what, I what they would have done if I would have taken the money and run. I think if I had a chance to do it again, I'd do that. But, but I didn't because it wasn't mine. I wasn't playing. It wasn't part of the deal. Take the money and walk off. Well, I'm back home a couple of weeks and watch a TV documentary on the swindles of New York City. And guess who's first up on the line? My buddy with the box. And guess who his two accomplices are? Two of the most beautiful women you've ever seen in full-length mink coats. They were not playing. They were part of the deal. And it's only then that I realized the swindler had already had this guy. When this guy put his money down, he had lost. They were already working on the next mark, and I was the next mark. But I had courage to walk away and to be done with it and to not try to enter in the game and not try to sob at myself and not try to get ahead, just walked away from that. May I say to you this morning, 
If you have been raised in a dysfunctional family, if you have been raised in a dysfunctional life, if people have not treated you kindly and fairly and you've been used and abused in any other way you want to describe it, there comes a point in life when you just have to turn your back and walk away from it and say, God, help me to rise above my past. If he can do it for Joseph, he can do it for you. And let me tell you one other amazing fact about Joseph. Joseph is only one of two men in the Bible that the Bible doesn't have anything critical to say. No criticism of Joseph is recorded in Scripture. He, he was raised in a, in a terrible setting. His father was, was not, not honorable in so many ways. His mothers were many and varied. His stepmothers were many and varied. His brothers hated him. He, he endured a lifetime of abuse. But in the midst of all that, with all that's written about Joseph, not one word of criticism to this man who had every right to use what happened to him as the excuse for the failures of his life. It had to be because he chose deliberately to let God control his life, not what was happening around him, but what he did in the midst of it. He had to adopt God's value system, honest, moral, faithful, loyal, not given to gossip and not given to verbal slander and not given to telling everybody how sorry those were who had treated him that way. He had to realize that he didn't blame everybody for what happened. He was looking to the future and asking God to help. I want to remind you again this morning that the great lesson of the life of Joseph in part is that God can help us rise above the mess we were born into, the mess of what people have done to us. God can help every one of his children rise above that. And that ought to say, we ought to say hallelujah to that. Let me tell you how it begins. It begins... Rising above our past begins at an unusual point. Rising above our past begins when we are willing to repent to God. Repentance means we simply turn around. We, we give our lives to God. We ask God to forgive us for the sins we've committed and the sins that we've made and, and all that goes along with that. And God breaks the power of sin in our lives. We sometimes don't talk about that enough. God breaks the power of what the devil has put within us. And a beginning point to living above your heritage begins when we make our lives right with God. You know, the reason some people, I think, don't ever get fully over what's happened to them is they don't ever really come to a place of repenting of their sins and telling God, I need you, I'm desperate for you, I need you in my life. And then getting above, rising above what happens to you, not only do we repent, but we submit ourselves to God, our fears, our failures, our future. God, what's happened to me so far has been terrible. I, I hope that in the future it doesn't hold the same thing, but I'm going to give you my life and ask you to control my future, and whatever happens, I'm going to stay loyal and honest to you. Would I give you myself and my future, repenting and submitting your future to God and submitting your past to God. Thirdly, I would say to you then, we have to allow God to change us. Joseph could have spent a long time asking God to change his brothers. Joseph could have spent a long time asking God to, to, to discipline his brothers and to punish his brothers. And by the way, they had their share of, of messes that they got themselves in. Joseph doesn't seem to do that. He just somehow seems to say, God, change me in this. The mess is terrible, and I can't get out of what other people have done to me. But would you change me? When God's people who are right with God, who've given God their life, who confess their sin to Him, begin to say to God, would you change me? Life takes on a completely different meaning. 
And what people have done to us suddenly seems to fade less and less and less in the background. And then, fourthly, we have to live faithful to God regardless of what's happening to us. Because slander doesn't stop when you become a Christian. And people still lie about you when you're living right for God. And people still accuse you of doing wrong when you've lived rightly. None of that stops. But we ask God, we tell God we're going to be faithful to Him, whether we're at a pit in the ground, or on an auction block, or in jail, or in a difficult marriage, or working in a real tough environment, or going to school with a bunch of people who don't honor God. We're going to be faithful regardless of what happens to us. Repent. Surrender to God. Ask God and allow God to change you and to be faithful to Him regardless is the key to rise above what life and people have done to you. But God's power is greater. and God has wonderful plans for us. And it took the mess of Joseph to allow him to be where he was and to save his family. As I mentioned last week, one man said the events of Joseph's life almost had to happen this way. To get for God to get him where he wanted him to be. The fact that his brothers captured him at just that moment in time. The fact that a caravan of traders just happened to come through during lunch. The fact that he was bought by a high official in Pharaoh's government. The fact that he intersected one of the servants of Pharaoh at a crucial time. I believe God caused Pharaoh to have a dream nobody could figure out. And finally brought to remembrance. And Joseph steps up out of the dungeon, ready to walk through the door God has for him. And he becomes a savior of the family, of the people who did such terrible things to him. And he became the savior of the remnant of the people of God. All happened because of God in his life. And he wants to do the same thing for you and I. Praise his name for his power. Praise God for being stronger than the devil. Praise God for having plans for us that are different than people have for us when, when they have plans for our destruction. Praise God for His involvement in our lives. If we'll not lose sight of everything, really repent. Give your life to God. Allow God to change you. Focus on being faithful. God will bless you in ways we have never conceived. And God will do through your life more than you can ever imagine. And maybe God will use you to be the Savior of your family or to be the rescuer of your loved ones, to be the example for your kids. And we trust God to help us. Can you live for God in the midst of a dysfunctional family? Joseph says, absolutely you can. You can live and you can excel if you'll let God bless you. Well, it's an emotional time. It's very difficult to talk about people's family. I don't mean to get in, uh, step over into lines that that, that are not appropriate, but I'll tell you, folks, I've thought about this message for weeks, and God is in this story. God is in this story for us. Amen. Let's stand and have a closing prayer. Father, we are thankful today for your great word. And while I read an unbelievable story and talked about an unbelievable story, we know that things happen that worse and more all around us. We know that none of us are immune from these things. 
And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to keep our eyes focused on you. May we, may we concentrate on ourselves and what we can control. May we, we live in a way that is in harmony with you and your word. May we let the power of sin be broken in our lives. May we submit ourselves to you to say, whatever happens, we're going to go God's way. Change us, O oh Lord. Change us to be the men and women we ought to be. You want us to be. You know we need to be to face the challenges of tomorrow. Help us, Lord, as we endeavor to be faithful to you. Give us strength and encouragement today. For you are great, and you are greater in our lives. And everyone says amen and amen. And you are dismissed today.